The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 5. The, as you know, historically there was a lot of tension between the northern and southern tribes of Israel. The northern tribes called Israel, the southern tribes variously at various times called Judah. And the Samaritans claimed, in the Samaritans' time of Jesus, claimed to be descendants of the northern tribes. And these northern tribes were not shipped out uh, to exile by the Assyrians when the Assyrians conquered in 722. And after the captivity, the northern tribes opposed the restoration of Jerusalem. And in the second century, they helped the Syrians in their wars against the Jews of the southern kingdom. Uh, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, a temple which the Jewish high priest, uh, which the, the Jerusalem cult regarded as absolutely perfidious, and a temple which uh, the Jewish high priest from Jerusalem destroyed in the year 128 B.C. So there's a tremendous historical, long-standing historical grievance by these people who are essentially ethnic uh, clones of each other. Now, ask yourself, is that happening anywhere in the world today? You see what I'm saying? This is, a, this is one of the most recalcitrant, stubborn problems in human history. Uh, this, this appeal to ethnicity and uh, religious prejudice is, the, is, is the, the major problem. Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, tells... Uh, uh, of a first century incident in which the Samaritans scattered bones of a corpse in the temple at Jerusalem during the high holy days of Passover, defiling the temple and causing the festival to be abruptly canceled. Now, this comes into play because later on we'll talk about how the priest could not come anywhere near a corpse, which is what, this, that's why it defiled the temple, because they brought the bones of a corpse in and scattered them, and so the whole temple was defiled and made it uh, unworthy of the sacrificial uh, rituals that were to take place there. So this is all this background, you see, of tremendous uh, ethnic, religio-ethnic tension. And there are a couple of things I wanted to offer on that. Uh, one is from a cartoon. I've been getting this uh, Washington Post National Weekly Edition for a long time, and sometimes I wonder why, because it's all inside the Beltway stuff, you know. But every once in a while there's something, and this week it was a cartoon. <laughs> so it was a cartoon with two uh, panels. And the first panel shows two guys sitting on a park bench, and one of them has a pipe in his mouth, and he's looking sternly and resolutely forward. And the other guy is a little more happy-go-lucky. He's reading the newspaper, and he's talking to, to this other guy, and he says, this ethnic tension is getting a little out of hand, don't you think? And the other guy just looks sternly ahead. In the second frame, the guy reading the newspaper says, Luckily, I myself am simply a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And the other guy, still looking sternly ahead, says, Angle or Saxon? <laughs> <laughs> and then down below, there's this little voice, which is like unconsciously something he's, not, he's thinking but not saying. It says, You look suspiciously like a jute, if you ask me. <laughs> so... I share that with you because the, the, the ethnic things are very much with us. In this morning's New York Times, the two biggest stories on the front page were the following. I'll read you the f first paragraph of each story. First, Sarajevo. Ignoring international 
condemnation and Western threats of retaliation, Bosnian Serb forces began an attack on another Muslim enclave in eastern Bosnia today, hours after they completed the ethnic cleansing of a nearby Muslim area overrun on Wednesday." End quote. First story. Second story from Zaire. A year after an exodus of a million Rwandans flooded the plains around Goma in Zaire, more than 720,000 Hutu refugees remain in camps in the area, many of them afraid to return, others rearming and preparing for a military offensive against the Tutsi-led government in Rwanda." End quote. You see, there's, no, it's, there's seemingly no end to it. It's the, it's the ethnic problem. We resort to it. You see, one of the things we say about this is we say, well, these are long-standing historical things. We've become very serious about them. There's some truth to that, of course. But we have to realize that these, that these so-called you know, terrible tensions die for hundreds of years and are revived. You see what I mean? These people can go together and live together more or less peacefully for a long time and then they're revived. And so we have to say, is this some virus that just goes dormant and is revived? I think we have to see it another way. And that is to say, it's resorted to, it's rekindled precisely when the sacrificial crisis begins to develop. When the world, when the, the, the world becomes undifferentiated and humans panic in the undifferentiation and they resort to, to, to primitive systems of differentiation, even though they have almost no modern uh, you know, consequences or effects, and they revive them, or say, shouldn't say they, I say we, we revive them because of some kind of uh, panic we have unconscious panic, what uh, Cesario Bandera calls the allergy to the desacralization of the world. We, an allergy sets in, and we return to systems that are capable of being sacralized, and they always lead to violence. And that's what I think the ethnic system is. So a big problem for the first century is Jews versus Romans. But if you'll notice, and there's plenty of passion around that, there's the zealots who really want to get the Romans out and so on, but, and that's political. That's at the level of politics more. It's colored by religion, of course, for the, for the Jews and for the Romans, for that matter. But the really heated one, is, religiously speaking, is between the Jews and the Samaritans. Because for the Jews, the Romans are the other, but they are the other other. They're the outside other. They're the external other. The Samaritans are the constituting other. They're, the Samaritans are to the Jews of the first century what the Protestants are to the Catholics in Northern Ireland and what the Catholics are to the Protestants in Northern Ireland, you see, and what the, and what the Israelis and the Palestinians are in the Middle East. They're the constituting other. It's not just an other, but they're in some kind of, they're in some kind of tangled, doubled relationship, uh, and it's more passionate because of that. So the Samaritans wouldn't accept Jesus because he set his face toward Jerusalem. That is to say, he's going to, the, he's going to the center of religious life as he sees it. And they think it's in Mount Gerizim and he's going to Jerusalem, so they don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, I said that the disciples, when the disciples can't get it, can't get what Jesus is saying about the transvaluation of all values, they turn the heat up on these other systems, these old sacred systems, us versus them, who, who's first in the kingdom and all of that, the other ways of differentiating. And so it says when, 
Jesus' disciples, James and John, saw that the Samaritans wouldn't accept him because he set his face to Jerusalem. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And then you have this thing, which is, I think, a great example of the, of the sort of, I don't want to say exactly paternalism or patronizing, but it's just this. It says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. It's that, he didn't sit them down. He didn't try to get to the bottom of this thing. He knows there's not much chance of that for the moment. You see, just, just keep following me. Don't do that. When you get one of these, you know, crazy schemes, ask me. I'll tell you not to do it. And just keep following me. I can, we can't get into it now. You don't under, you're, you're still under the epistemological cloud, you could say. So there's no reason to waste my breath on you. Just follow me. Now, the next little set of pericopes has to do with following Jesus and what a radical commitment that is. All the more so because they don't know where they're being led. You see, that's the whole point. The, the idea of following Christ has to do with not knowing. Lead kindly light. Show me only the next step. This kind of thing. The idea of knowing where this thing is going is antithetical to the idea of following. The whole idea of following is you don't know where we're going. You don't have a map. So all you can do is follow me. It's, very, it's, it's that kind of thing. So following in terms of their epistemological uh, uh, handicap is tremendously important. So it comes into play right here. And there are three little stories about it. And I'm going to read the second and third and then come back to the first. Uh, another to, to one that he met on the road, Jesus said, follow me. And he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead and go and pro proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. End quote. Well, so much for family values. I mean, these guys just want to do what's always been done. And we, I think we have to appreciate here, when this man says he wants to bury his father, it's not just an act of filial piety. It's a, it's, a, it's a ritual which buys into the whole ethno-religious construct. You see what I'm saying? But it's Jesus saying, if you want, you can't have it both ways. You can't go back and appeal to that clan, uh, those, that set of clan conventions. You can't, you can't continue to revive your sense of who you are in terms of that clan structure and still proclaim the gospel. You simply have to break out of that. And breaking out of it is going to be painful. And it's always going to come up against one of these injunctions. You're, you'll be able to break out of it until something happens. And it'll always be drawing you, pulling you back into it. You see, it won't let you go all the way out. And Jesus is saying, no, if you're going to break out of it, you've got to break out of it. And this is very radical. And it sets up this impossible possibility, which the Christian church is, which is to create an enculturating force whose effects are to free us from the forces of enculturation. <laughs> so anyway, then the first one, which I skipped, I read the second two. The first one, which is a much more summary one, 
is as follows. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have their lairs, the birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, uh, one commentator, Alfred Plummer, says of this, quote, Jesus' life began in a borrowed stable and ended in a borrowed tomb. And I think that's right, that one should see it that way. But I think what we have to do is see this in terms of social and cultural uh, home. It's not a question of Jesus didn't have a permanent residence or something like that. Uh, what's he saying? In terms of these other two things I just read, he's talking, and in terms of this little ethnic tension that just went on between his disciples and the people of the Samaritan town. You see what I'm saying? What he's saying, it's related to those. Luke is a genius for putting these things side by side but not connecting them so that the mind has to make a leap. If Luke had filled in, this is what good poetry does. Good poetry never fills in that, and it lets the mind make that leap and therefore gives the mind of the reader or the listener the opportunity to experience that, that uh, breathtaking movement, which is the, liberation, the epistemological liberation, which I am at the very, this very moment screwing up for you because I'm filling in the gaps. See? So I'm, I'm, being, I'm not being very good here. I'm betraying the gospel. I should just... But anyway, so that's my, that's my occupational... Uh, sin probably but in any event when he says the son of man has nowhere to lay his head in light of everything that's happening around the gospel at this point we have to read that I think in terms of ethnic social cultural uh, identifications he's trying he's trying to say to them you can't have it both ways the son of man if you're going to follow the son of man you have to be you have to start now you don't He's not talking about some scandalous rejection of these cultural uh, and social obligations and proprieties and so on. That's the other subtle thing about the gospel. He's not saying, you know, you must, you must angrily reject all this. Perhaps you, perhaps you should perform those duties, but you should never do it in such a way that you're drawn back into that kind of ethnic or religio-ethnic identification. You're to become a universal being. And the world's never seen a universal being before. All we've ever seen are enculturated beings. And the enculturation process always ties us to some form of the what Hammerton Kelly calls the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. And the gospel is about to free us from that. Now, the next little thing is the sending out of the 70 missionaries. And it says, after this, so still we're connecting, everything is connecting. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town where he himself intended to go. And again, this is an advanced team. They're going out in pairs as the 12 disciples do in the Gospel of Mark. And I think we could stop and think about this if you wanted to. The sending out in pairs is, um, is I think, it, it's a recognition in narrative form of the instability of the autonomous self. You see, the idea of the autonomous self. We go in pairs because we need one another. We need that kind of mimetic reinforcement. Uh, on our own, the, the 
force, the mimetic forces are too powerful. So on our own, we would go out and we would, as they used to say about missionaries, go native. You know what I mean? There are two, interestingly, there are two metaphors here. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you like lambs into the midst of wolves. You see, to, to harvest this particular crop requires lambs willing to go into the, into the midst of wolves. How do you harvest the crop for the gospel? You see, you harvest it by being a lamb willing to go into the midst of wolves lambs going into the midst of wolves. That's the harvesting technique. Well, of course, he told them that here, just as he told them that same thing earlier on. They don't get it, no doubt. And he tells them again not to carry a purse or a bag or sandals, etc. That's like being a lamb, so you have nothing to rely on. Uh, and he prepares them for rejection, as just as he did with the twelve before. So uh, he says, preach to them the kingdom. If they do not welcome you, go into the streets, shake the dust off your feet, uh, and tell them that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, on that day, it will that that day, the day the kingdom of God breaks in, it would be worse for this village than for Sodom, because the gospel had not penetrated into so Sodom as bad as Sodom was morally. Uh, it's it, the, what determines how bad things are going to be when the kingdom begins breaking in, is how much exposure there has been to the gospel. Now, that, we, we find that all through the New Testament. And we have to, we have to begin to take this seriously. There's a, there's a major treatment of it following the passage I just quoted, which is this, and then I'll make some comments on it. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon, again, a pagan world uh, full of idolatry, but a world in which the gospel has made no incursion. But, Jesus says, at the judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, the judgment, the Greek word means crisis. Okay. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And what's, what is the determining element? The determining element is whether or not the gospel has made an incursion into that particular cultural setting. Then he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Now, there are a couple of things here. When the disciples wanted to bring down fire on the Samaritans, Jesus just, you could clearly see, took a deep breath rebuked them and said, just follow me. Obviously, they didn't get it. Obviously, this idea of bringing down fire is a part of the old sacrificial system. Je is Jesus saying, has Jesus changed his mind now that we're talking about uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida? No, he's not saying that. And we have to be very clear, this cannot be interpreted in, some, in, in terms of some kind of uh, gory orgy of God's violence, vengeance. You say, violent vengeance. It's ridiculous. It doesn't fit with the gospel at all. And that's why passages like this 
have become a litmus test to determine whether or not you and I receive our uh, intellectual club privileges in the modern world. If we reject these passages out of hand, we get our, our, uh, our license. And if we don't, we don't, you see. <laughs> this is used as a way of saying... I mean, so, so we automatically say, well, this is first century uh, oriental hyperbole, da-da-da-da-da. And I think it deserves more than that. I think we buy our intellectual respectability at too high a price if, we re if, if rejecting this is the price we pay. When Jesus' disciples wanted to bring down fire on the Samaritan village and he rebuked them, that's what the gospel is saying. You can't do that. But here, he's not talking about bringing down fire. He's talking about a, a culture descending into Hades. That's what he says about Capernaum. You, you think you're going to rise to the heights. You're going to descend into Hades. Now, what does that mean? What that means, I think, is that the old system for staying out of Hades is going to be compromised by the gospel. And the, and, and the gospel is, you know, the, the train's leaving the station. The gospel has another way. It's presenting another way of staying out of Hades. But as it passes through, it destroys the old way. So if we refuse the gospel, then it having passed through our culture, the old system for staying out of Hades begins to deconstruct and there's no other system except for the one which begins to s see the world from the point of view of the victim which is what the gospel is and so I think there's something intellectually coherent and historically unbelievably important in these very passages which we reject are the first ones to be rejected I mean people like Stephen Mitchell and so on have this sort of Jeffersonian Jesus and they come along and they say, well, we, let's, let's, let's have a Jesus who's just a, a sayer of wise sayings. Let's get rid of all these things that, are, that really are intellectually insulting. You know? It's those very passages which tell a truth we don't want to hear because it's, 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 it's an awkward truth and it's not diplomatic. We may have to be diplomatic in breaking the news to the world but the truth in the gospel is simply sitting there. And we it's too awkward. We don't want to deal with it. Okay, so, now Jesus sent out the 70, and they return with joy, saying, and they're very excited. This is, this is evangelical. We have to really appreciate the evangelical quality here. They come back, and they're high as a kite. And they say, Lord, in your name, even demons submit to us. And one wonders whether there's, the emphasis is on in your name or us in that sentence. <laughs> in your name, the demons submit to us, you see, and they're just filled with it, just the way we would be. Uh, and he said to them, and so now I ask you, is his response a non sequitur or not? He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. And so, wait a minute. And they're probably a little crestfallen, you know, because they were all enthusiastic. And then he says this thing is kind of off the wall as far as they're concerned. Right? He saw Satan fall from heaven like a, a flash of lightning. Now, and what I want to do now, I suppose it's a midrash because it's not interpretation. 
uh, a friend of mine said it must be Midrash. Uh, It's what came to me when I read that passage because of other things I've been thinking about lately. Uh, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. A flash of lightning is very bright. It's illuminating. And one could mistake it if one had one's back turned to the actual event, which is Satan falling from heaven. What does it mean, Satan falling from heaven? Satan means the accuser. Satan is the one in charge of all the kingdoms of the world. And he's falling from heaven like a flash of lightning. That's a passion prediction. But we don't... You see, it's a passion prediction in terms of the effects of the crucifixion. So, if one doesn't really see what's happening, and all one sees is this flash of illumination, which I think, again, we have to interpret epistemologically, suddenly, oh, man, this is something. Look at this. And it's like them saying, the demons submit to us all of a sudden, which is a way of saying, the demons don't exist. Never did. And we now know that. And we're free of them, and we're in charge of them. And the world has totally changed. And and I, and what came to me when I read that is that's what the Enlightenment is. In the Enlightenment, and beginning with the Renaissance, really, but the Renaissance Enlightenment, suddenly we saw, hey, look at this. There's this tremendous illumination. We can actually use our rational minds. We can actually invent science. We can actually think things through. We can be logical. All of these things which our ancestors couldn't do, they could do it in a kind of weak, I, I say this condescending, in the kind of weak way in which Plato and Socrates and Aristotle did it. But they couldn't do it in this incredibly powerful way that, the, that suddenly people in cultures under the influence of the Bible suddenly were able to do it. And just like these people coming back to Jesus, it went to our heads. And we said, hey, this is absolutely tremendous. We're, we're not shackled by irrationality anymore. We're not living in myths anymore. We can actually begin to investigate the world. We can look into it. We can you know, open things up and discover things. We can think independently of the old mythic system. It's an absolute revolution. And it must be because we're smart. It must be because we're rational beings. So it's, it must be Descartes and Kant and all of that. You see what I'm saying? And all it is, really, is the effect of Satan having fallen from heaven like a flash of lightning. And it goes back to that quip of Girard's about we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science, but we invented science because we stopped burning witches. The, the, the thing was broken. The old scapegoat system was broken. And as it, as, as it ground down, the, its mythic power faded. And suddenly we were able to poke our heads outside of it and begin to see the real world. So I think it's tremendous. It's, I mean, every, every week I come up on about three or four passages, which I think are the most important passages in the Bible. And now this is one of them. I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. So then they're still rejoicing now, remember. And Jesus is not exactly going to rain on their parade. But on the other hand, you see, you could say that Luke and Jesus already seized the problems of the Enlightenment. <laughs> so he says... See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Now, this is the Lucan Jesus talking to the Lucan Christian community because I think when Jesus says here, I've given you power and authority, it's really the power and authority that comes from the whole Jesus event and not from 
just the preaching of Jesus prior to the cross, but to the whole cross, resurrection, ascension uh, event. I've given you this power. And you can now you can tread on these snakes and scorpions because you because in a sense you recognize them. You recognize their immateriality, their insubstantiality. Nevertheless, Jesus said, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I, to me, again, I think it goes back to this thing of the disciples don't know what they're doing. Even though they don't know what they're doing, things are happening. And I think this is the miracle of Christianity. This is why the paraclete gets all the credit. You see, I think it's true of us just as much, if not more so, than it is true of them. We don't know what we're doing. Fortunately, we're not obliged to. I mean, it's helpful to know a little more rather than a little less, but it's not necessary. And I think this is this is something we haven't we haven't realized so much. I mean, if if Christianity only spreads because those who spread it know what they're doing, how far would it have gotten? You see what I mean? You don't have to know. All you have to do, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, is know that your names are written in heaven. That's to say, no, just let yourself be used. Fall in love with this person. Watch what happens to him. Listen to what he says. Read the story to the end. And then lighten up and let something start happening to you. And if you have a theological bent, then go read a lot of books. But you don't have to. And even then, you may not know any more than somebody who hasn't. You don't have to know. I think this is tremendously liberating. Now, again, you couldn't possibly accuse St. Luke of being anti-intellectual, but he understands that it's not a question of what we know. And it's not even a question of what we do. It's an important question of what we do, which I'll get to later, but it's, all, it's a question of whether the Spirit is moving through us. Just as Mary in Luke's Gospel says, be it done unto me according to your word. That's the, that's the Christian response par excellence. So having, having slightly rained on their parade, saying not rejoice, then we get the following. At the same hour, that's Luke's way of saying these two stories are connected, Jesus rejoiced, told them not to. Now he's rejoicing. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, and this is a prayer, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent ones and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. End quote. Now, this is really extraordinary, I think, because if you imagine, I mean, this is a little campy, but if you imagine Jesus has just moved slightly away from this crowd, 70 of them, they're, all, they're, in, a, they're in a real heat, you know, having had all this evangelical success. Jesus says, don't rejoice. He moves slightly away and rejoices. And what does he rejoice in? He rejoices in the fact that those people that have just, that have just had all this missionary success are infants. That is to say, he rejoices in the fact 
that God has chosen to work through people who don't know what they're doing. The wise and the intelligent don't get it. Now, again, Luke is not anti-intellectual. When he says wise and intelligent, he's not talking about people with high IQs. The wise and the intelligent are the people who know they're wise and intelligent. And if you know you're wise and intelligent, then there's a problem, which is pride. And it's pride which is the problem. And the determination to turn oneself over to something only after you have uh, scrutinized it and it has passed muster intellectually. And so you can go around with the gospel. You can do that dance with the gospel till you're blue in the face. And that's why faith, it's only faith. And it's only faith in a person that will break that particular little round dance. You see, the intellectual uh, will, or the one who wants to scrutinize it, as soon as I know for sure that this is really foolproof and uh, there's no funny business here, well, I'll do my best. But meanwhile, I'm going to take a close look. You can spend a life doing that. It's only when one falls in love with that particular person and realizes this, this, this is the person I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow somebody and this is going to be the one. That's the only way you can break it. So the wise and the intelligent who are still scrutinizing and without realizing it, perhaps, sinning the sin of pride, can't get it. And these people, who Jesus refers to as infants, that's a little condescending, don't you think? But I think we should feel that. He's not just talking some kind of romantic lullaby. Infants, I think he, he means they don't really know what they're doing. They're actually they're actually converting people. They're actually participating in the conversion of the world and they don't know what they're doing. And, he, and Jesus is over there thanking God that God has chosen to carry on this work using <coughs> infants. Now, you see, if the wise and intelligent are saying the sin of pride, then we, have, we say, oh, well, these people are infants. Uh, they, they must be humble. Well, they're not particularly humble. Remember, just the verse just before, a couple of verses before, they were, they were saying, hey, look, the demons submit to us. <laughs> not exactly an example of humility. And humility, here's the problem. Here's the problem with humility. As soon as you're aware of being humble, you cease to be. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I asked you to think about your own experience. The second you realize you're humble, you have ceased to be humble. So here's, that's, I think that's what poverty of spirit is. Poverty of spirit is having humility without knowing it. Because if you know it, it screws things up. And that's why the spirit uses infants. That is to say, people who are humble don't even know they are. You see what I'm saying? This is a really a wonderful thing about the gospel. And it takes me back to this story of the blind man in, in John 9, which my friend James Allison uh, interpreted in this paper of his. And in that story, you remember the blind man is cured. And I, as I said, he doesn't know anything about what's going on uh, because he's always been outside of it. And so they say to him, uh, the man who cured you is, uh, is an evil man. He's a sinner. And the blind man says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. The only thing I know 
is that before I was blind and now I see. I do not know. This is really, this is Christian agnosticism. You could say that. Gnosticism is knowing. That's what the word means, to know. See? And fundamentally, it's prideful, I think. And there is in Christian faith, it's not an alternative to Christian faith, it's part of Christian faith, a, a form of agnosticism, which is, as I said before, we follow because we don't know where he's going. We, ha we, are, we, we allow the Spirit to use us because we don't know what the Spirit's doing. So, like this man, we say, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of things I don't know. But there's one thing I know, and that is that I was blind before, and now I see. And again, I would read that in all kinds of ways, morally and ontologically, but epistemologically. I was blind. I could not see the world as it really is, and now I can see it. And the reason, of course, that he's able to see it is because Jesus left him right in the middle of the persecuting crowd. Jesus opened his eyes with paste, you know, that he put on his eyes and made him wash in the, water, in the uh, pool of Siloam. But that was one verse. That was opening his eyes in a certain way. But when Jesus left him in the middle of that crowd of persecutors, his eyes opened at another level. You see what I mean? So it's the, it, that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to bring out here. And so this thing Jesus says about the wise and intelligent ones have it hidden from them and the uh, infants have it revealed to them. It concludes with what uh, William Barclay says, quote, is the greatest claim that Jesus ever made, the claim which is at the center of the Christian faith, that he alone can reveal God to men, end quote. That's another one of those claims that we don't want to deal with because it's too undiplomatic. And here it is. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Now, this, this is a commentary on all the stuff I've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The disciples don't get it. The disciples don't realize who he is. We don't either. You and I don't either. And this, this, this passage tells us so. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And then he says, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Father is the living God, the one and only living God. And Jesus says here, no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son reveals it. Now this is a radical claim. Jesus in John's Gospel says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So, I think that's something we have to take seriously. That's the Gospel claim. We can accept it or not accept it, but we shouldn't just dismiss it as requiring no consideration from us. Before I turn to the Good Samaritan story, I want to go back and just pick up a, something that I meant to say when we were talking about those other things. And that is, it's entirely possible that when Jesus sends out the 12 earlier on and when he sends out the 70 in the section that we read earlier, 
uh, that he's doing it's a little bit like the Peace Corps. You know, he's doing it for their benefit more than for the world's. Uh, that 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 you only get the gospel when you preach the gospel. You only get it uh, when you begin to pass it on. And as soon as you stop passing it on, you stop getting it. Well, anyway, I want to come back now and do two, two stories, and they belong together, the story of the Good Samaritan and the story of Martha and Mary. And we don't have that much time, so I'll try to be as, um, as quick as I can be. First of all, in Mark, we have a scribe asking Jesus, which is the first commandment? And Jesus says the first commandment is to uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Luke, who's writing for a Hellenistic audience, a Gentile audience, changes things around a little bit. He has not a scribe but a lawyer, not, not any tremendous difference there really, because the lawyer would be a canon lawyer, a, a lawyer, a law, a, one of someone who knows the, the Jewish law, the, the uh, Jewish scriptures. But the lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the question doesn't start out about the first commandment or anything like that. It starts out about uh, uh, what to do to inherit eternal life. Eternal life would be a term unlike the kingdom of God. Eternal life would be a term that the Gentiles would know about. The Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture would know about ideas like eternal life. So the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's already in that question the tension inside the gospel. And it's, very, it's a, a tension right at the heart of Paul's writing, many of Paul's writings, which is, what must I do to inherit? Now, inheriting is a passive uh, thing. You say, to inherit is a passive verb. I inherit. You don't do anything to inherit. You simply happen to be the child of the person, the, the heir of the person who's passing it on. So the idea of inheriting something doesn't quite fit with the idea of doing something in order to earn the inheritance, because you don't earn an inheritance. You earn other things, and inheritance comes unearned. So I just mentioned that, and, in, and there, it's a legitimate tension, because we have to do something. The gospel requires us to do something. But because of that, it's very easy to misinterpret it and think that it is earning something. It's a merit system. And it's not. And Paul really emphasizes that, of course. And Luke is, is considerably influenced by Paul. So Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And again, this, there's a little Socratic process going on here, familiar to the Gentile world. Jesus throws it back to the, to the lawyer. What's it say in the law, in the Torah? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So for him there's one commandment, and it's in two parts. And Jesus said to him, You have given the right answer. That's the answer. He has the answer. Now, do it, and you will live. You got the answer. So, did you come to fish or cut bait? You see, he came to test Jesus. He knows all along. So Jesus says, now do it. But, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? 
Now, you see, this is the question. What do you do in order to inherit eternal life? And he wants to justify himself. And the, the need to justify oneself is a symptom of something. And what's it a symptom of? To go back to some of the things we talked about, I would say it's a symptom of the lack of ontological moorings. It's the symptom of the lack of ontological density. What, when I say ontological moorings, ontological density, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the first commandment or the first part of the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul. Those who do that have no need to justify themselves. They have no itch to justify themselves. And that's what Paul's talking about. And Paul says, you can only love the Lord your God by coming to know him as he is revealed by Christ. You see? So the very fact that the lawyer, the text says the lawyer wants to justify himself, you already know that his problem is with the first part of the commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul. If he did that, he wouldn't need to justify himself. So that's his problem. But wanting to justify himself, he asks about the second part of the commandment. In other words, he completely ignores the first part of the commandment. He's a modern. He's just like a modern. And this is the, one of the things I argued in the book as well, you see. We ignore the first part and think that we can... Uh, that, that we can... Uh, meet the requirements of the commandment simply by meeting the second part. They go together. You can't have, you, you can't meet them by only meeting the first part. But he ignores the first part. We'll come back to this. Who is my neighbor? Okay, so Jesus tells him a story. He doesn't even Jesus doesn't even say, "I'm going to tell you a story." He just starts the story out. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, a man, some man, anthropostis, which is generic, a man, was going down from, Jer from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a windy, mountainous road that in the first century was a, uh, a, a haven of criminals where people just preyed on the travelers that went from, from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho and back and forth. So it's a treacherous place. A man's going down, and he fell into the hands of robbers. I'm, I'm just going to draw out the few things we have to notice about this story. Let me say before I do all this, if this story is, as sometimes it's interpreted to be, if it's simply a story about having compassion on somebody who needs compassion, then you don't need robbers at all, because the man could simply fall and break his leg. Okay? If you decide you want to have robbers, you don't need more than one. All you need is a robber. You see what I'm saying? We have to understand why this story is what it is. We have to see the structure of the story. It's plural. Robbers. And they fell on him. Now, we have no indication that they robbed him. What we have is violence. Now, there is there's implied robbery. It says they stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead or leaving him for dead. This half dead or for dead means unconscious, looking like he's dead. Stripped him and beat him. No mention of robbery. Well, you say, well, if they stripped him, they robbed him. Uh, okay, fine. But it's implied, not explicit. What's, what's explicit is that it was a terrible beating. A beating which, 
there's no reason, particularly if it's multiple robbers, there's no reason to beat him that much if all you want to do is rob him. He's stripped and beaten. What does it mean to be stripped and beaten? To be stripped, you see, when he's stripped, he has no more markers, cultural markers. In the first century, now this takes us back to the theme that I began with today, which is the theme of ethnic, religio-ethnic distinctions. Because in the first century, uh, both one's ethnicity and one's socioeconomic status within a certain ethnic group were largely determined by clothes. And so when he, we say he's stripped, we mean he, he's without any cultural markers at all. Again, if the purpose of the parable was some kind of uh, exhortation about compassion, all we need is somebody who comes by, no, shows no compassion, and somebody who comes by and shows compassion. That would be all we need. That's not what we get. We get this, quote, Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So we have a priest and a Levite. Well, it says they saw him, but the question, of course, is, did they really see him? In Luke, there's this question of whether we see Jesus. And it's, a, and it's an epistemological question. It's not just a, 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 a physical question. And that's why when we get to Luke 23, at the moment of the crucifixion, and we have that thing about the, the people who came to see the spectacle saw what had happened, the word theoria, you get this tremendous breakthrough. But here you don't have that. It's a literal seeing. They see him, but they don't see him in any way that's, that's, that's uh, morally uh, significant or humanly significant. And they pass by on the other side, which means they literally scoot to the other side of the road. And why? Because they're priests and Levites. Now, priests and Levites were part of the, part of the, the sacrificial system. In order for them to participate in the sacrificial system, they had to be undefiled and to, and to touch or, or be contaminated in any way by a dead corpse would defile them and render them uh, impure for the, for the participation in the sacrificial ritual. Their whole role in life is to conduct these rituals. So they are constantly preoccupied with, with avoiding the things that would keep them from carrying out that role. And one of them, a very important one, was any contact with a corpse. So they, pa you see, this man is, he's not dead, but he's left for dead. He's half dead, which is to say, from a distance you can't tell whether he's alive or dead. So caution suggests that they pass on the other side of the road because they're on their way to their professional duties. And to come closer to him, you see, would be to uh, violate. This is really, a, this is just an extension of the whole problem of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. It's exactly the same problem. What goes on? Do we actually attend to people or do we pay attention primarily to these, to these religious structures? You see? Now, I want to say something in passing and I don't want to get caught up in it. It, it, it would deserve a lot more time than we have time for, for here today. But just as a footnote, really, that dread of coming anywhere near the corpse goes back to the origins of the sacrificial cult itself. Ultimately, it goes back to the moment when the victim is lying there 
and the victimizers know that they cannot encroach on that sacred space. That's the moment when the, when the, the old sacred system comes into being. And avoiding corpses, as these two are doing, is simply an, a, a reverberation, a distant reverberation of that old sacralizing impulse. And then what does that tell us? Now this is where we don't have time to get into this, but the Bible tells us that the, the, that the consequence of sin is death. And I would say one way of understanding that is death as a cultic fascination. The sacrificial system is fascinated by death, and it exists to move it around on the board uh, to, to the best advantage of all. That is to say, it's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed. The sacrificial system is fascinated in a cultic sense by death, and it serves death. It both serves it and it serves it up. It performs it in order to ward it off. It's the, death is at the center of the whole sacrificial system. So I think, ultimately, we have either the sacrificial system re-emerging and drawing all the fascination back to death, or we have the gospel breaking us free of that. And it's interesting to me that in our world, as the Enlightenment project collapses, we get the emergence of nihilism, which is nothing more than the religious fascination with death and all of the, and all of the uh, sort of cultic mystery of death. And this is very much in um, Heidegger. You know, Heidegger talks about the being unto death, this fascination with death. Um, and, I, and two things, I was reminded of two things. One is from James Breach, who wrote a book called The Silence of Jesus, which, is, uh, which I have some trouble with, but he says some pretty good things in there. And speaking of the neglect shown by the priest and Levite in the Good Samaritan story, Breach says, quote, their avoidance confers sacral power onto death and implicitly recognizes it as the force which is ultimate in human life. And I think that death will always be, death and avoiding death will always be the organizing principle in any sacrificial system. And that's why when Paul says, death, where is thy sting? He's talking as someone who has broken free of that. You see? It's true. Again, all these things have to be reconciled. Uh, but once we start to put them together, we, we'll realize what an incredible liberation the New Testament presents to us. Sebastian Moore, again, I said this when we did that series on Virgil's Aeneid. Sebastian Moore uh, says, quote, Death as ultimate horizon... Let's sin make as much sense as sin can make. And to me, it goes back to this question of sin and death, sin and death. Uh, and Moore says, Sebastian Moore says, death is, quote, our God displacer, our pseudo-God. And speaking of which, and so I, what interests me is in the modern world, as the uh, Enlightenment project collapses, you get things that started out to be life, and then suddenly there's something else. And I've said this before, and people get the wrong impression when I say this. I'm not saying I want to go back to some uh, situation in which, uh, in which uh, women are discriminated against at all. I do not. Uh, but you get a situation in which a, a feminist movement comes along and, and, and doesn't realize how indebted it is to the, to the New Testament for its, its own moral uh, 
promptings. It's tremendously indebted to the New Testament for those promptings. Nevertheless, it, it begins to ignore that, and pretty soon its, it's reigning principle is a mother's right to kill the baby in her womb. See, It becomes death again. It starts out with the best of intentions. Now, I know I get in trouble every time I do this because people think, but I don't care. This morning in the New York Times, uh, Peter Steinfeld's uh, column on uh, religion, he has it on Saturday, usually he and several other people. And this morning, it, the first sentence in the column is the following. Are euthanasia and assisted suicide about to become part of the liberal agenda? End quote. Well, he goes on to say, looks like maybe so. Maybe not, maybe so, question mark, da-da-da. The point is, it starts off with the best of intentions. It starts off really and truly driven by a New Testament moral imperative. But because it cuts itself off from that moral imperative, it becomes death. It becomes fascinated with death. It becomes Heideggerian, you see. It becomes what Sebastian Moore calls our pseudo-God. Anyway, end of, end of little uh, aside, all of this came to me because I saw the priest and Levite moving to the other side of the road, which is just a way of bowing before death. It's a way of capitulating to the power of death, as opposed to the opposite of what they do is Paul saying, death, where is thy sting? Or what the Good Samaritan does, and I'm supposed to be doing the new Good Samaritan story, so I'm going to go back to it. My friend Andrew McKenna, who's always good for a, a real insight or two, uh, in, in a brief comment about the Good Samaritan story, says the following, Most commentaries emulate the priest and the Levite by moving away from the centrality of the victim. Most commentaries on the Good Samaritan story emulate the priest and the Levite by skirting the question of the victim. The story is about a victim. It's not about somebody who fell and broke his leg, you see. It's not fundamentally about somebody who suffered an economic deprivation at the hands of others. It's about somebody who was beaten half dead by a mob. That's what it's about. So then Jesus goes on. But now that the other two passed by, a Samaritan while traveling came near him and when he saw him, now it says he came near. It does not say that the priest or the Levite came near. It says they saw him and moved to the other side. So because he's half dead, you maybe you have to come near to realize he's not dead at all. He's he needs help. But they don't want to risk that, you see, because the possibility of being contaminated. The Samaritan and this, by the way, you see, if this were a modern thing, we would immediately begin to wax uh, romantic about, oh, well, Samaritan culture must be superior. These Samaritans must be noble savages or something. It's not true. The Samaritans are just as full of this stuff as, as the Jerusalem Jews. It's not a question of that. And Jesus is not telling them that because he's romanticizing Samaritan uh, culture or morals. He's telling it to them because for them... The Samaritans are the ones that would never get it, and he's trying to break them out of their little ethnic enclave, mentally, you see. They're locked in it, and he's trying to show them that you can't, you can't really see what you have to see by staying inside that. So he says, The Samaritan, while traveling, came near, and when he saw him, was moved with compassion, which is the only reference to anything that could remotely be considered psychological in this story. 
This is not a story about anything psychological. It's a story about a certain movement, and I think we have to understand it not in terms of, of a physical movement. It is a physical movement too, of course, but in terms of, a, of, of, of an instinctive movement. When faced with a situation like this, are we concerned with ritual purity? Are we concerned with the ritual event that will happen in Jericho when we get there? You see, are we concerned with the ethnic differentiations uh, to see who's who on the, in this uh, ethnic grid? Or are we automatically concerned with this one who needs help? And this is the gospel. Jesus is talking about the gospel. The Samaritan behaved according to the gospel, even though he never heard of it. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and, and took care of him. So I, w I want to come back to something, but first let me read this. Then Jesus says, Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now this is interesting because early up before it said that the Samaritan went and poured oil and wine into the wounds of the man that had been beaten. Oil and wine were used as part of the sacrificial ritual. They were they're tools of the sacrificial cult. I'm not making this up, by the way. There's a number of commentators to bring this out. So when Jesus says, which is the, uh, which is the uh, neighbor, the man says, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy is, is, a, is a very resonant term. It's a, it's a loaded term. Uh, mercy brings into question the whole problem of the sacrificial cult. Because you go back to Hosea, who said, God wants mercy and not sacrifice. And so the Samaritan, who has with him oil and wine, why does he have it with him? Why do people carry oil and wine? The priest and the Levite, no doubt, had some oil and wine with them, or else they had some where they were going, because they used it in their sacrificial cult. And what does the Samaritan do with his oil and wine? He pours it into the wounds of the victim. What does that mean? It's a literal, it's an absolutely magnificent, literal, narrative version of Hosea saying, God wants mercy and not sacrifice. You see that? It's absolutely exquisite. I want to read you a poem and then tell you another quick story. And the poem is E.E. E. Cummings. A man who had fallen among thieves lay by the roadside on his back, dressed in 15th-rate ideas wearing a round jeer for a hat. Fate, per a somewhat more than less emancipated evening, had in return for consciousness endowed him with a changeless grin. Whereupon a dozen staunch and leal citizens did gaze at pause, then fired by hyper-civic zeal, sought newer pastures, or because swaddled with a frozen look of pinkish vomit out of eyes which noticed nobody, he looked as if he did not care to rise. One hand did nothing on the vest, its wide-flung friend clenched weakly dirt, while the mute trouser fly confessed a button solemnly inert. Brushing from whom the stiffened puke I put him all into my arms and staggered, banged with terror through a million, billion, trillion stars. 
the last place one would think might be the gateway to the kingdom, you see, becomes the gateway to the kingdom. Brushing from whom the stiffened puke, I put him all into my arms and staggered, banged with terror through a million, billion, trillion stars. Well, I had to read that connection with the Good Samaritan story. Finally and quickly, if all we had is a Good Samaritan story, we would, we would conclude that all we need to deal with really is the second part of the Great Commandment because that's all it deals with. You have to go out and, and do good in the world and take care of everybody. But remember, this whole thing started with the, whole, with the Great Commandment, the first part of which, the primary part of which is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul. And that wasn't dealt with at all in the Good Samaritan story. And Luke has a way of, of, of telling stories in diptych. And often these stories in diptych, will one will be about a man, another about a woman. And so here we have one that's about a woman. Now, in order to appreciate it, we have to realize that it's going back to what was left out in the Good Samaritan story, which is the first part of the Great Commandment. But in the commentaries I read, this has not been brought out. But it's, I think it's pretty obvious. There must be dozens of commentaries that bring it out, but it wasn't in any that I saw. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a village, he, Jesus, entered a village where a woman came up to him, Gine Tis. In the other story, it was Anthropos Tis, a man, uh, to any kind of man. You see, here, Gine Tis, a woman, named Martha. But we have to see the diptych. A man, a woman. This woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his word. Now, sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his word, those are technical phrases in first century Christianity. Sitting at the Lord's feet is like following Jesus. It's a discipleship term. It's not, it doesn't... It's not talking about physical relationships in the room. It's, it's something else. Sitting at his feet, listening to his word. And it's also receiving. You see, it's part of this, let it be done unto me according to your word. Just sitting and receiving. Now, if we only had the Good Samaritan story, we, we, would, we would say, well, we've got to go out and do all these good things. Do the good work. Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And the word here is, the word for task is the word for serving. You see, she was distracted by the various things she was doing, which was all had to do with serving. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now this is, there's a comic element here. Here's the situation. There's a house. Martha's in the kitchen, so to speak. Martha's in the kitchen. In the other room, there are two people. Jesus and her sister. Who's she thinking about? Who's she preoccupied with? You see, this is the problem. This is the problem of transcendence. It's the problem of transcendence. 
Jesus is there to bring transcendence into her life. And she's completely preoccupied with whether or not Mary is going to help her. The word help in Greek is a, comp is a, is a uh, combination of a number of, uh, of uh, terms. It literally means take with over against. It's a, it's a complicated thing. Essentially, the implication etymologically is, here's a table, it's too big for me to lift, I need somebody on the other end. Help means, who's going to be on the other end of this thing I need to lift, that kind of a thing. Take with over against, I need somebody over there. And it's a tremendous term in turn. You see, Paul, when Paul talks about prayer, Paul says the Holy Spirit will help you. And he uses the same term. You see, it, it, the Holy Spirit will be the other. Jesus will be the other. Don't always now. When you go out to the missions, you don't you, you take somebody else who's a fellow Christian that, who performs this role to some extent. But there's always going to be somebody on the other end of that thing. You see, there's, and this is not just having to do with chores. This has to do with selfhood. The self is always going to have this other over there, and the question is, who's it going to be? And it's the whole thing is laid out right here. We are Martha. Faced with the question, who's it going to be, Mary or Jesus? Who's it going to be, our, our, you know, our sister, our brother, somebody in our own social environment, or is it going to be Jesus? So I think that's pretty amazing. And Jesus, the question, the question is constituting other. Who's going to be the constituting other? For Mary, the constituting other is Jesus. For Martha, the constituting other is Mary. You get the whole, the whole problem right there. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. I, I, sometimes I think about this Martha, Martha. In a sense, he's calling her back. You know, He's calling her back. When he says, says her name twice, it's almost as a, as a way of, you know, when the prophets say, uh, I was called, uh, my, my name, the Lord knew my name before I was born. Uh, to be called back, it's a way of trying to bring her back, you see to ground her in something. She's caught up in this. When she complains about Mary, it's just another reason, it's another example of being caught up in all these tasks. Everything is horizontal and everything is scattered and everything is too, uh, too um, unstable. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part which will not be taken from her. Now, I think we have to read this in terms of the first great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then we have what Jesus says earlier, which I quoted earlier today. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So in order to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, one goes to Jesus to learn about that Father, which is what Mary is doing. You see, I think we have to see it in terms of answer, addressing that first question of the Great Commandment. We've done too much and it's time to go, so I'm going to just wrap it up with one really beautiful quote from John Donahue who wrote a commentary on the parables and he saw the connection between this Good Samaritan and the Martha Mary story uh, and dealt with it to some extent and he has a nice summary and I want to share it with you in closing. He says the following, 
Perhaps one of the reasons that generations of Christians have found the parable of the Good Samaritan so consoling to narrate and so impossible to imitate is that they are too busy being Samaritans to listen to the word with silent attentiveness. Nor do they experience that freedom possessed by the outsider who has so little to lose that only eternal life can be found. End quote. You know, Rumi, the Persian, 14th century Persian poet, said, said, be like the one who when you enter the room, luck shifts to the one who needs it. See, that's the good Samaritan. It just moves that way. So you could say that that's the first part of the story is that. And the second part of the story is how do you do that? How do you have that freedom that it takes to do that? And there's only one way to have that freedom. And that is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and spirit. And as a result of that ontological mooring, one is free to do what the Good Samaritan did. If we turn the Good Samaritan story into simply a moral exhortation about doing good in the world and, and avoid its relationship to the first part of the Great Commandment, then we create precisely the kind of uh, enlightenment liberalism which is collapsing in our day. And it's, and it's too bad that it's collapsing because we need to be doing those good things in the world. But the goose that laid the golden egg of those good works is the first part of the great commandment. And as soon as we forget it, then, as I said earlier, those good intentions will begin to be overtaken by a strange form of nihilism which we see creeping into our world today.